You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, August 31st, 2021. Later in the program, Indiana recorded the highest amount of COVID-19 cases in schools compared to any other time throughout the course of the pandemic. More in today's headlines. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Artbeat, a segment where Dr. Feliz Chichek interviews artists, activists, and educators about their work. Today's guest is Betsy Surratt, the director of the IU School of Fine Arts Grunwald Gallery. More in the bottom half of tonight's program. But first, your daily headlines. On August 30th, the Bloomington Utilities Services Board extended funding for COVID testing and monitoring to continue at wastewater treatment sites. Funding was approved throughout the end of the year. Assistant Director of Environmental Programs James Hall explained the program monitors the sewage system to assess where COVID-19 spikes are occurring. Utilities Director Vic Kelson explained why the funding was needed. We began sampling last July, uh, basically on our own initiative. Um, uh, By the end of August, we were participating in a larger program with the state. But that program ended in December, and we've continued the, and that uh, at that time, uh, referring back to what Board Member White pointed out, uh, that we're only sampling at two locations. For a while, they were sampling at eight locations three times a week. Now we're sampling at two locations once a week, um, and that's simply because of cost. Board member Jim Sherman asked Vic Kelson if he thought the public's disapproval over the general 2022 budget would impact the utilities budget approval. Kelson responded that he wasn't completely sure, but that he isn't worried about it. I don't, I I have no idea uh, what will happen. I'm sure that everything will work out in the end. It it always does. Um, Our budget is separate from the general fund budget, however, so uh, we're really not affected very much directly by uh, what happens with the other budgets. The next meeting will be held on September 13th. Indiana recorded the highest number of COVID-19 cases in schools than at any other time throughout the pandemic. Students made up over 5,500 new positive cases, while teachers and staff totaled to over 600 new positive cases according to the Indiana State Department of Health's COVID-19 data report. While almost 1,000 of the new positive cases date back to several weeks prior, State Health Commissioner Dr. Christina Box warns that the dashboard doesn't fully demonstrate the gravity of the latest surge in schools caused by the Delta variant. Next week, we'll be able to add a toggle feature to the school dashboard that will differentiate between the school years, including showing which schools have reported as required yet this school year. This will show that more than 1,200 schools have not reported this school year as required. I want to stress that these cases must be reported to the state. 
Unfortunately, we have many more weeks of this high level of activity before we can expect this Delta surge to start declining. And that's why it's imperative that every Hoosier do what's needed to prevent additional cases. Dr. Box said that new infections and hospitalizations are on the rise, similar to the surge experienced last winter. Our positivity rate has risen to 10.8%, fueled by a significant increase in new cases. As a reminder, our positivity rate was just over 2% at the end of June. Since Monday, we have seen more than 20,000 new cases with increases across all of our age groups. Pediatric cases have risen steeply with the most significant increase in our 10 to 14-year-old age group, as you can see on the slide. We also have seen sharp increases in the 5 to 9-year-old age group and among our older teenagers. Many of our hospitals are once again struggling with staffing and capacity issues. Nearly 2,200 Hoosiers are currently hospitalized with COVID. Keep in mind that our peak was just under 3,400 patients. Box also said during last week's COVID-19 update that the state saw a shortage of ventilators and ICU beds. She tried to dispel the myth that children are not affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, citing a recent increase in hospitalizations among young children. And we've seen the percentage of available ICU beds fall again, which impacts every Hoosier in need of critical medical care. Yesterday, we received updated reports on available ICU beds in hospitals across all 10 emergency preparedness districts in our state. Four of those districts reported utilizing more than 100% of their ICU beds. Those districts were 2, 3, 5, and 10, representing the northern, northeastern, central, and southeastern portions of our state. The majority of the hospitalizations continue to occur among our older Hoosiers. This is the age group in which we have seen the biggest increase. But we've also seen an increase in children being hospitalized. Many of these children are not yet eligible to be vaccinated. To anyone who argues that COVID-19 does not impact children, I can assure you that every parent with a hospitalized child would disagree. The Delta variant remains at the core of the latest surge. A clear majority of samples taken by the state health department shows that the Delta variant accounts for much of the recent uptick. This surge continues to be fueled by the extremely infectious Delta variant. Nearly 98% of the new cases we are sequencing continue to be this variant. We only send a portion of tests for sequencing to determine if a variant is present, but this sampling provides an accurate representation of the level of the variant in our state. None of this is good news for Hoosiers. I've heard other medical professionals around the country state that this is the darkest time in the pandemic. Box says the start of the school year drives many of the new cases reported in schools. She said this furthers the need for students, teachers, and staff to wear masks and get vaccinated. Those ages 12 and older are eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. To find a vaccine clinic near you, visit ourshot.in.gov. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements brought to you by the producers of KiteLine, a radio program devoted to prison issues around the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs at 5.30 p.m. each Monday on WFHB Community Radio. It's also available online at wfhb.org.
and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Fight Toxic Prisons has asked for supporters to call the New Orleans ICE office and demand that immigrant detention centers take necessary precautions as Tropical Storm Ida bears down on Louisiana. Last year, detainees were left stranded without food, water, or medicine. New Orleans ICE can be reached at 504-599-7800. Prisoner advocates are demanding that President Biden take action to protect the 4,000-plus people, many of them elderly and immunocompromised, who were released from prison and sent to home confinement because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now the Federal Office of Legal Services has issued a mandate sending those people back to federal prison when the pandemic is declared over. Unless the Biden administration intervenes, those thousands of people will be ripped from their homes and sent back to prison. Those are people who have been safely and successfully reconnecting with their families and reestablishing community ties, as evidenced by the 99% success rate of home confinement. Any circumstance where people are sent back to prison is in direct contradiction to the Biden administration's public promise to invest in ending mass incarceration. If the administration doesn't take measures to keep the thousands of people at home and out of prison, the administration will be presiding over the fastest expansion of the federal prison population in history. Louisiana rapper Corey Miller, known as C-Murder, has begun a hunger strike at the Elaine Hunt Correctional Center in St. Gabriel Parish over concerns about COVID-19 and the status of his trial. Corey Miller's attorneys Benjamin Crump and Ronald Haley Jr. state that the DOC and the prison warden are, quote, not enforcing the mask mandate, unquote, or requiring employees to get vaccinated. Miller is currently serving a life sentence without parole. In August of 2009, a jury voted 10-2 to convict him in the death of Stephen Thomas, who was shot and killed at the Platinum Club in Harvey, Louisiana in 2002. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled non-unanimous jury verdicts are unconstitutional, but that same high court ruled the decision doesn't retroactively apply to this case, despite several key witnesses recanting their testimonies under oath. The family claims that the district attorney has evidence showing, quote, an illegal DNA cover-up that was not presented to Miller or his attorneys and only discovered after his post-conviction relief had already been filed. In addition to this cover-up, several of the state's key witnesses have since come forward and signed affidavits in defense of Miller's innocence, stating that they were forced by the police to give false information and to testify against him in court. Many witnesses at the scene have come forward stating that Miller was not the perpetrator of this crime. The Miller family statement also says inmates with terminal illnesses are not receiving proper care and are dying. Quote, there are many inmates that have ailments that were not properly treated and as a result have died after contracting the virus, end quote. And from Corey Miller, quote, I have seen many terminally ill inmates that have been put in front of the medical leave board to try and get a release to go home and spend their last days or months in the care and comfort of their family's home, only to get the runaround and pass away in prison while awaiting a decision. I know that it's time that I stand up, no matter how uncomfortable it makes my stay here, end quote. 
Kim Kardashian and many other celebrities have joined the fight to free the New Orleans rapper. He states, quote, half my life has been stolen by the Louisiana judicial system and it stops now. As students around the country begin the new school year, some communities are reevaluating the need for police officers in schools. In recent decades, the percentages of schools across the nation with a police presence on campus increased from less than 1% to nearly 60%. Indiana doesn't disclose the number of police officers in schools, but in the last few years, between 900 and 1,200 students were arrested on school property. Daryl Heller, who directs the Indiana University South Bend Civil Rights Heritage Center, points to data showing that black students are arrested at more than twice the rate of white students. Heller observes, quote, We know that black and brown students will get punished harsher and more frequently for exactly the same behavior as the white students do, end quote. He adds this disparity often leads to criminalizing behaviors that are really just kids acting up. He's urging the South Bend School District to remove its five school police officers. In Heller's view, a new agreement between the district and police department is long overdue and could be an opportunity to put resources to better use. Heller went on to say that community members who want officers in schools might think their presence improves student safety, but research shows otherwise. Heller says, quote, we're willing to spend millions of dollars a year to pay police to be in our schools when we could actually be using that money to pay for more social workers or more restorative justice practitioners or others who I think would make our environment in schools much safer than a mere police presence, end quote. A bill in Congress, the Counseling Not Criminalization in Schools Act, would prohibit the use of federal funds for law enforcement officers in schools. Nationwide, over 14 million students attend schools that have police officers on duty. Now it's time for Artbeat a segment where Dr. Felice Cicek interviews artists, activists, and educators about their work. Today's guest is Betty Stirrat, the director of IU School Fine Arts Grunewald Gallery. We turn to Dr. Cicek for more. Welcome to Artbeat with Dr. Felicicek at WFHP. My guest today is Betsy Stewart, director of the School of Fine Arts Gallery. Actually, it's the Grunewald Gallery of Art now. We used to be the Sofa Gallery, remember? Welcome to the show, Betsy. Thank you very much for having me. Like most people, we had to shift all our scheduling in our lives and in our work. In our cases, it's art. But I am seeing that there are some events coming up that are going to be in person at the gallery. That's right. We've actually been over open through most of the pandemic, honestly. We have, you know, after the initial shutdown in March of 20, through March, through the summer, and then in September, we, yeah, we opened again, and um, we've been open to the public since. And tonight will be our first public opening reception for the faculty show. You know, we don't know how it's going to go. It's a little bit unclear. Um, Obviously, 
masks are mandatory. We're going to have a small amount of food or, you know, nothing big. And it's all going to be individual portions and things like that, but it is going to be inside. And so, you know, we're going to have to kind of remind people to keep their masks on and things like that and try to be socially distant. But so I don't know how it's going to go. I'm not worried. I guess I'm a little bit unsure. <laughs> so. so we are all learning all together and experimenting. Sounds like this is this is an experiment. Yes. And if it goes well, you are planning to do other events? Yeah, we will. We have not scheduled really anything much for inside for the rest of the semester because we just didn't know how this was going to go. So we kind of took a simple route with this by just having a just a simple reception, no talks or anything like that. Although we are going to be open to the public and we will be doing tours for IU classes and things like that. So, you know, during the day we will be doing that where we can accept a number of people in the space and you know, the gallery's big, mm-hmm. so it's not a real issue. I'm not too worried about it about that part. It's more of the crowd kind of crushing <laughs> that I'm concerned about. So, but you know, IU wants us to to go ahead and do things. And so we're doing it. Well, I hope it goes all well and I'll probably see you this evening. Great. In addition to being the gallery director, you are also an author and an artist. So you make art, you also write about art. Are there any any works there that you would like to share with our audience? Sure. I have a couple of things. I've been really interested in um, uh, learning more about where I am, which is in Indiana, Southern Indiana specifically. And I have to say, I've lived in Bloomington for a long time and um, really didn't take advantage of what's around us very well by going out and exploring in different parts of Southern Indiana and looking at the landscape and looking at nature and what's around us. So I've been able to do that in the last few years. And especially during the pandemic, it was weird. You know, a lot of us were going outside more, right? And um, it wasn't just that though. It really started way before that. I was going out and taking pictures of things. And so I got involved in a project called Ebb and Flow, which is a collaborative project with Tracy Templeton, one of my colleagues at at this Eskenazi school where I work. And uh, she's a printmaker. And so we decided to just go around to different sites in Southern Indiana where water was either historically important or hidden and photograph those places and make art about it. So we've done that and we haven't really shown it that much. We showed it at the uh, new Cook Center for Arts and Humanities as part of a larger show. And then right now it's being shown in Owensboro, Kentucky. But it's been really interesting to learn about these places, these beautiful places in Southern Indiana, where either the White River or the Lost River or some of these hidden springs or sulfur springs kind of come out of the ground. And, you know, you, you just kind of don't pay attention to that. It's like appreciation of what we have here, I think, for me more than anything, and understanding that, you know, this is a beautiful part of the world. And I, that's a very kind of an exciting thing for me. A lot of the caves um, or water sources and all that. That's sort of a little bit looking at the environment and appreciation of our environment and what's around us. So that's kind of an exciting project. It's going to be ongoing. Sounds like you are exploring your backyard. Yes. All the environmental issues that we are facing, it seems very timely. And And the artwork that is related to that have been sort of uh, collage-like works that Mm -hmm. are both paintings and photographs. 
So that's kind of exciting to me. I love photography. I grew up with photography. I knew in photography since I was a teenager and I've just kind of become reacquainted with it in the last few years. And I'm trying to figure out a way to combine sort of my history of being a painter with some of these photographic images. So that's one thing um, that I've been doing. The other thing is I've been doing the platinum prints and they're also of um, landscapes, but the landscapes are in Ireland. So those are, it's a 19th century process. People probably know generally what a platinum print is, but what's nice about it is you have to put the emulsion on paper by hand. So you paint it on and then it shows the brush strokes. And so I was very interested in that because it combines sort of the idea of painting and photography. So those will be um, shown actually this month in Ireland. So that's kind of exciting. So those people who are interested in the book and the paintings, where should they go? I do have a website. It's uh, BetsyStirrett.net. It has a lot of the recent work and has an archive section. Thank you very much for joining me today and sharing all that you have been doing. Thanks so much. This was fun. I appreciate it. You have been listening to Artbeat with Dr. Phyllis Chichek on WFHB. Tune in on Tuesdays on WFHB after 7.15 in the morning and again during the daily local news at 5 p.m. Or you can listen online at wfhb.org. We understand following the local news cycle can be difficult, especially with the hustle and bustle of our daily lives. So in order to make it easier on you, we provided a rundown of yesterday's news. In today's review, we look at Pride Fest, which took place in downtown Bloomington over the weekend. Pride Fest is honestly a celebration of being happy and being who you truly are. Gay is a synonym for happy after all. It is a time where you can be unapologetically, truly yourself. No judgment. You can be in this fancy outfit. You can just show up very muted. There is absolutely no judgment, and it is honestly a safe place for everyone. It started as a riot, and I definitely like how we've sort of continued on with this trend of celebrating um, the events that happened at Stonewall and saying, hey, we are here, we are queer, and we're not going anywhere. I love it. I love the vibes here. It's just so great, so fun. Love everything about it. Um, just seeing like everybody out and everybody here supporting everybody. It's just so great to see. Pride has always been about pushing the boundaries. It's always been about celebrating the progress that we've made. I think the the future of the LGBT community is our youth, and I think it's important that we support the young people as they push those boundaries and seek to really be who they are. Well, well, I came out in 2019, and ever since I came out of the closet, I am openly gay now, and I just I love pride and everything that has to do with it because it's just it makes it makes me feel normal, you know, because it's very hard in this time of days, and especially with COVID and with uh, everything going on, it just. Being back at Pride just makes me feel like myself, my true self. I feel lots of love in the air right now and support. I haven't felt this in over a year <laughs> due to COVID. I would say so much love and acceptance. Like I think it's just a little glimmer of light in what's going on in our world right now. 
Pride has meant a lot of different things over the years. Obviously, when I first was, you know, discovering that I was bi, like as an adult, uh, just learning how to become comfortable almost through like immersion therapy of just being around all of these people. Now it's honestly, it's more about supporting others. I think Pride Festival in Bloomington is you know, is super important just for connection and celebration of who we are, but I think it is particularly important in a place like Indiana, which is a red state, which is a conservative state, that there's actually a lot of us here that uh, that need safe spaces to be able to celebrate and be open. Um, this is still really crucial and important in a place like this. Um, and it's important to me personally because uh, I'm always seeking places where liberation is at the forefront, and that's something that's really difficult to find. It's really wonderful. I really am happy to be in community with other uh, queer folk again and getting to see people in person, uh, seeing yourself, others who um, share aspects of your identity that you can be in solidarity with and um, not feel marginalized, finding, like, meaning and joy in who you are and sharing that with other people. Pride Fest is basically a way to support everyone and who they are and not feel discouraged. Everyone's together. It's not like you're being criticized for who you are. Personally, it's amazing because it feels like I'm finally being understood of who I really am and everyone around me supports it. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. KiteLine is produced by Mia Beach. Our beat is produced by Dr. Feliz Chichek. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast, as well as all other WFHB news programming online at WFHB.org. You, too, can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program dedicated to exploring the depths of outer space. Coming up next on WFHB. been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 